For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So, uh, thank you, David. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, for new people, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragons Zen Gate. Uh, I'm really happy to introduce again my old friend Stephen Hine, who will be giving the talk this morning. Stephen is the foremost Dogen scholar of Ehe Dogen Zenji, the founder of our branch of Buddhism Soto Zen, called Soto Zen in the 13th century. Um, I'm not qualified to speak about Japanese Dogen scholarship, but uh, arguably Stephen is the world's foremost scholar of uh, Dogen. If I was just to name all of the books he's published on Dogen and related matters that he would not have time to speak this morning. Mm. So um, this morning, uh, Stephen's going to be talking about an, an essay in Shobogenzo that is one of the more practical and less, quote unquote, philosophical. Uh, this is the essay, The Eight Awakenings of Great People. So Stephen will be speaking about that essay. Um, and I'll also mention that Stephen and I are both share uh, interest in the study of Bob Dylan as well. And we're going to be going to, again, to a, a, a conference uh, at the Bob Dylan Archives in Tulsa later this year. Anyway, Stephen, thank you for uh, speaking again at Ancient Dragons Zen Gate. Uh, thank you. Please. Uh, thank, thank you, Taigan. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, thank you for all your work and teaching on Dogen, which has inspired all of us so much. Um, I'm going to do a couple share screens. First of all, this first one will be the um, title page of a PowerPoint <clears throat> that I'll be using with some other images and text. Um, and um, as Taigen said, uh, I'm talking about the uh, fascicle, not as well known as many others, but I want to put it in uh, context and highlight the significance of it um eight awakenings of <clears throat> of great people um it is uh, sometimes translated as of a great person uh referring to an enlightened one but you know it it, it can be universal in that all all uh, all people and all beings are are buddhists um now the, the interesting thing one of the interesting things about this fascicle is that it was the last known piece of writing we have from Dogen. It was um, dated uh, January or first month, according to the lunar calendar, um, of the, the year 1253, which is the year Dogen died. He died in the eighth month of that year after leaving Eheji to uh, go back to Kyoto, where he sought some medical help, which was ineffective, and he died in the home of a uh, lay a disciple um and his body his his remains were were uh, taken back and and still exist at a Heiji temple um <clears throat> so we can consider this the last set of instructions of uh Dogen to his followers 
And uh, that phrase, last set of instruction, has a couple of meanings because he clearly wants to put himself in the position of a famous uh, Chinese Buddhist sutra, an, an apocryphal sutra, meaning it's one of the many sutras that can't be tracked down historically, but has has been part of the tradition, at least since the uh, early Mahayana uh, period in China. And uh, he, uh, he wants to put himself in the position of a particular sutra that's, was, uh, that represented uh, the Buddha's last um, sermon to his followers on, that was supposed to have taken place the midnight before he entered uh, Parinirvana. And Dogen is more or less duplicating a lot of the words in that in that sutra. In fact, uh, surprisingly enough, there's very little in this fascicle that's actually original to Dogen. Uh, uh, some of the writing at the beginning and the and the and the last several paragraphs, and I'll talk about a little bit of that. But mostly, he's quoting uh, a, a particular sutra, which talks about eight teachings and um that that people need to practice after the buddha would have no longer been available to have a kind of face-to-face teaching or face-to-face transmission um and um it um and 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 he also um uh bases it on a particular um commentary that was popular in uh chinese uh, circle chinese temples when he had visited China. So this is one of many features that Dogen helped to introduce uh, into Japanese uh, practice in the medieval period in the 13th century, and especially, of course, in Soto Zen, but also uh, some of this was followed by Rinzai Zen teachers as well. Um, Now, to put that, to frame that issue about Dogen's biography a little bit more and its relation to his Teachings. I'm going to show quickly uh, two other screens, and then I'm going to return to this PowerPoint. So the first one will be um, and many of you will recognize this. This is from Kaz Tanahashi's famous translation of Shobogenzo, which originally came out in two volumes, is in one, uh, then later in one volume. And um, this is uh, my Kindle edition version of it for easy reference. And um, for those of you who've worked uh, a lot with Kaz's translation, you know that uh, towards the beginning, before the, the fascicles get underway, he has a very uh, detailed section where he goes through year by year and fascicle by fascicle and gives uh, a brief historical account and cites the the colophon or the postscript for the fascicle. So what we can learn about the origins of the fascicle based on um, the records of, um, mainly based on the records of Dogen's main disciple, Ejo. And those are repeated in the translation later at the end of each fascicle. But it's interesting, um, it's a very useful tool, the way he kind of compresses it all, all that information into this one uh, chapter to help introduce the Shobogenzo. And here we can see that um, the um, 
a fascicle, Eight Awakenings, of, and he calls it Great Beings, um, was written in 1253, as I mentioned, uh, sixth day of the first month. But it's um, it's listed as number 84. Now, uh, I don't want to get too tied up in the technicality of the different versions of Shobogenzo, but it is something that well, I will need to mention a little bit and hopefully illuminate a key point here. Um, but the question comes up now is like, if this was the last thing that he wrote and Shobogenzo is generally considered to have 95 fascicles, uh, why is this n- number 84 instead of 95? That's one question you might raise. Now, we know that Kaz's translation actually has lists 96 fascicles, so that's a little bit of a variation there. But this is the, um, as he explains, this is the last one. We know the date. And then the next section, uh, I went in the wrong direction. The next section will be um, fascicles not dated. And and so he goes from 85 to 96 and not dated. And one of them is called karma in three periods or three times. And I will cite that briefly uh, later. So I wanted to just point out that, that, and one other version of Shobogenzo in English that I wanted to uh, point out is uh, Hubert Nierman's PDF file, which um, I also find uh, useful because it has the entire translation. It, you know, it differs some ways from causes and the others, but you know, that's always interesting to look at, but it has it all in one uh, free, easy to access, searchable uh, PDF file. Now here, he calls it of a, a eight realizations of a great one. So again, he doesn't use the plural, but I don't want to quibble over that uh, tiny point. The, the main point I want to show here is that he numbers it 96. So because it's the last known uh, writing from Dogen's life, uh, he's got it in the 96 slot as the very last one in the collection. And if you look over the all the various manuscripts and publications of Shobogenzo over the centuries, um, usually it was placed, um, you know, in that last slot. Um, so Kaz's approach is, uh, varies a little bit, but he has, you know, he has a good explanation for why he uh, for his rationale. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the s- meaning and significance of the of the fascicle. And um, but in Dogen style, I'm going to take a path of indirection here at first by just giving a couple slides that talk about the general issue of non-duality and morality that I think helps to understand what Dogen is doing in this fascicle. So a perennial issue in Zen, and we could say in other forms of meditation, or if we use the word mysticism in, in, in Buddhist tradition and other traditions is if you reach a state of non-duality through contemplation, through medit- meditation, in this case, through Shikantaza, um, how do you reconcile that with the life of uh, dualities where moral judgments need to be made and distinctions between right and wrong? and understanding the results of karmic punishments and rewards um, uh, needs to be understood. So what is the complicated 
intricate relation is it is it explicable at all and i think if you look at dogan's various writings you might find different perspectives over the um over the course of time that he he composed various <clears throat> fascicles and also the the uh, dharma discourse dharma hall discourses in extensive record and other other kinds of writings um but as a segue, to help segue into the Eight Awakenings fascicle, let me cite something by the famous um, Chinese monk Jiaozhou or Joshu in Japanese pronunciation, uh, a famous story, not, not one used a lot by Dogen, but uh, it makes a point that I think is relevant to understanding Dogen. Does a teacher go to hell or not? Jiaozhou is asked by apparently... Uh, a government official, and we know in those days in China, the the Zen teachers often were um, <clears throat> instructing the high level uh, civil officials who were part of what they called the literati class and who were interested in in philosophy and meditation. And Zhao um, Zhou uh, says to the inquirer, "Yeah, I'm the first to go." And the official says, "No, you're a truly a virtuous person. Why would you go to hell?" And uh, uh, Zhao says, if I didn't go to hell first, uh, who would be there to, you know, be wait, waiting there to teach you? So, you know, it deals in a very interesting, you know, typically Zen koan like a um, uh, bit sarcastic, facetious, tongue in cheek way with the issue. And uh, Linji and others have commented that, you know, Zhao the greatness of Zhao was that he could move back and forth between the realms of, of, uh, of pure land and hell uh, and know how to navigate without ever getting stuck. And that would be true for other, other great um, Zen teachers as well. Um, so where, but where does that leave us with the perennial question of non-duality and morality? Now, I think to sum up, this, this is um, an image that I used in um, a recent book published by, um, uh, Shambhala called Dogen, uh, Japan's original Zen thinker, um, or Zen teacher. And, um, you know, juxtaposing these two images. Actually, I was inspired for this by, by, um, a, a kind of Japanese, uh, manga, uh, comic t- style book about Dogen's life where they had some, um, very interesting, uh, illustrations. And this juxtaposition of, um, uh, Zazen and, performing chores in this case um uh cleaning the floors that this is a famous practice that takes place uh, in the hallways at heiji um but uh, this picture on the right could refer to anything other than sitting meditation and it could be walking meditation it could be reciting sutras it could be cooking um you know various kinds of cleaning up eating uh any any of the uh diverse act sleeping it could be any of the diverse activities other than meditation and that are seen as an extension of meditation and not in conflict with meditation. And the common ingredient is sustained exertion, um, continuous effort that maintains the uh, dignified demeanor that all practicing Buddhists have always had. And there, Dogen expresses this in many different uh, fascicles, and there's different you know terminology he uses. But I think it's fair to say that he often comes back to the same point, linking activities, the dynamism of purposeful yet purposeless activities um, 
many of which are involved in cleaning, tidying, cooking, preparing, um, sweeping, etc., with uh, meditation, so that there's a seamless interplay. But again, um, what does that leave us in terms of the uh, the kind of moral question? Well, I think Dogen wants to, uh, you know, one consistent thing in his earlier writings and his later writings is that he wants to leave us to a large extent with this idea of the sustained practice, the ongoing exertion of everyday um, uh, everyday affairs uh, dignified by the demeanor of practicing Buddhists. And that's kind of the solution that he has in many cases and including in this um, in the fascicle on the eight awakenings. Okay, so now I want to explain a little bit more about the fascicle, where he borrows from a popular Chinese Buddhist, um, again, apocryphal sutra. And he didn't necessarily introduce the sutra to Japan. Apparently, it was it was known and used in Tendai rituals before Dogen, but he did help uh, make it uh, a kind of mainstream focus in Zen practice, especially in regard to anticipation of death. Now. Again, I, I always appreciate ways that Japanese commentators over the centuries have illustrated Dogen's life. And I've often used um, this set of about 60 or so drawings that were uh, created in 1803, um, which was the uh, 650th uh, death anniversary of Dogen. And it was a time for and, the, and these 50 uh, death anniversaries, <clears throat> including 2003, uh, the recent one, have been occasions to republish Dogen's books, rebuild uh, uh, the uh, hallways in um, Etaheji, um, uh, get the word out about uh, Dogen's teachings to a more popular audience, et cetera, et cetera. And in 1803, they came up with these illustrations of various episodes in Dogen's life. And uh, fortunately, I've had um, a, a, an assistant working with me for a number of years who's really good with Photoshop and has been able to kind of recreate these to avoid um, <laughs> copyright issues in terms of uh, uh, reproducing some of these that are that are held um, uh, by um, by the Soto sect. But um, but this is uh, so so this is the scene where Dogen would have given his last sermon. So we can imagine how it might have felt um, because this was the first month he didn't die till the eighth month. So people didn't know how sick he was. We, we, you know, maybe we can leap to the assumption that he was already very sick and he lasted longer than people thought, but he chose this time shortly after new year to give what he would call his last, um, his last sermon. And he bases that idea almost entirely on the sutra that that Shakyamuni, when he was when he was dying, he he gave his last instruction at midnight. Now, um, uh, the um, uh, according to the uh, opening uh, passages, he says that um, these teachings lead to Nirvana. They're the following instructions of our original master, delivered uh, before he entered Pari Nirvana. And in another uh, fascicle that was written around the same period, we think, um, he says that Dogen, uh, the disciples to whom the Dharma is bequeathed should recite and receive the, um, these eight teachings with the utmost respect. 
And so one issue is, okay, when the Buddha's not there, when Dogen's not there, when the great teacher isn't there, and, and you can't have uh, Menju face-to-face uh, encounter and transmission, what are you left with? And basically, Shakyamuni had said, you're left with precepts, you're left with uh, guidelines for behavior. And so this is, seems to be what Dogen is trying to put forth as well. Um, now, there's a lot of topics that he doesn't talk about in that last fascicle that you we might think he would have he could have talked about. He doesn't mention terms like Buddha nature, Genjo Koan, Shikantaza, and other terms that that are that fill up uh, many of his earlier writings. Here's an image uh, that shows the uh, the Buddha's um, sutra, um, and um, in the last passage, he, he tells his followers, let's stop talking, not say anymore. In other words, he, he doesn't want any more. There's no, there's no time now for more questions and answers. The time comes for me to enter Pari Nirvana and for you to hold on to my last instructions. Now, I want to point out um, that uh, probably many of you are aware that, that, um, in, in, uh, that, that Dogen wrote a death poem supposedly at, uh, composed uh, moments before he died. And uh, his poem was based a lot on his Chinese teacher, Ru Jing. And this was a common practice in Chinese and Japanese Zen, Rinzai and Soto, uh, of the, the final poem, the death poem. And uh, when uh, the, 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 the Chinese character I'm highlighting here with the cursor means to, uh, the poem that's, uh, means means what's left behind or what's bequeathed. The last, it's the last teaching that's left behind. That's the title of the sutra. The teaching that the Buddha leaves behind, bequeaths, meaning the very last words. And that's what the poems are called. It's the poem that's bequeathed to the followers when it's uttered just before death. Uh, a couple of illustrations about the, uh, about the sutra. We can see it has a long title here. The shorter title is the one that we were just looking at on the previous slide at the bottom. But the the introductory title does mention the words Parinirvana in Chinese here. And so some people mix up that sutra with a famous sutra of Nirvana Sutra or Parinirvana Sutra. But uh, that's, the, you know, this is a separate uh, body of writing. However, um, in Dogen's era and in later times, including um, Day, um there were numerous uh, Mahayana sutras that were turned to for guidance about um, the uh, the meaning of the of the uh, of the um, of Buddha entering Parinirvana, uh, how uh, what his guidance was, and how that relates to various precepts and different kinds of practice. So. The sutra I'm referring to, the sutra of last instruction, or the bequeath sutra, is often grouped with uh, these other uh, sutras, and um, you can and and some of these are translated. And uh, there's a uh, volume by the in the famous Numata series of translations that has our sutra, this first one, linked with the forty-two sutra of forty-two sections, and a couple of these others. Um, Okay, but how about Dogen's writings? Dogen, you know, is this unusual for Dogen? And we know that Dogen talks a lot about behavior, and he talks a lot about different groups of of instructions. 
you know, if you look over the list of fascicles, one of them has um, called the 37 factors of wisdom, where he goes through one by one, 37 precepts. Uh, there's the four methods of the Bodhisattva. In each case, he says, okay, four methods is actually 16 methods because four times four is 16. And 37, he also squares that numerically uh, in a comment he makes at the end of the fascicle. And I, I forget the number, it's 1300 or something, 13 something. Um, we also have the f- famous fascicles, washing the face and, and washing and, and cleaning, um, where he talks, uh, where he gives detailed instructions on, on, uh, you know, washing, cleaning, and uh, relieving oneself, brushing one's teeth, and uh, you know, and and bodily functions. Um, he also, of course, talks about the sixteen precepts, um, and the uh, one hundred and eight gateways to illumining the Dharma. Little typo, um, and uh, and the awakening eight awakening. So these different sets of numbers. These last three fascicles I'm highlighting because those are usually considered, those are considered part of uh, a special collection of Shobogan's own known as the 12 fascicles collection. And these were all written um, at the end of Dogen's life, it seems. Uh, Eight Awakenings was dated, but the other two um, have no dates. And the assumption is that they were drafts that Dogen left behind and Ejo uh, edited, edited them a couple of years later. Um, by the way, the, the one on uh, 108 gateways, that was totally lost and out of circulation until 1927 when a manuscript with these with the 12 fascicles, including these three and eight others, uh, was discovered at um, at one of Kazan's temples, actually, in the Noto Peninsula, north of Eheji. OK, so what does the fascicle itself tell us about it? I don't want to get in, hung up in too many details here, but it's very interesting that the the uh, the postscript by Ejo says that it was written in the you know in 1253, um, and now uh, two and a half years later, in the summer retreat of 1255, so that would have been about two years after Dogen had died. He asked Guillen, and you know our friend Guillen. Uh, was was destined to become the third uh, abbot of Eheji after um, after uh, Dogen and Ejo, um, and here he's working as a kind of secretary to complete Dogen's manuscripts. And uh, our teacher was very ill, and he says he planned to actually write a hundred fascicles, and we don't know much else about that. That's the only this is the only place where that term is mentioned. It comes in twice here. 100 fascicles, but he was planning to do 100, and this was the 12th, and we don't know what 12th means exactly, although there is a collection of 12, and it's, and in, you know, in the big collections, this is 84, 96, but in the 12th, in the collection of 12, this is the 12th fascicle, and he says, Ajo says, those who admire and cherish our late teacher should honor this fascicle, this 12th one, or the, maybe, or the, or the whole group of 12, it's, it's not clear. But in any case, it's the last instruction bequeathed by our teacher. Okay, now going to the last two bullets. Um, not only did Dogen borrow from that sutra, but that sutra 
doesn't include only the eight awakenings. It, it has other instructions as well, but it's, that's kind of the middle section. Somehow, um, that middle section was, of the eight was something that was popular in Chinese Buddhism. And there's a sixth century monk, very famous monk for, for his, um, encyclopedic work on, on Mahayana philosophy and practice, uh, with the titles here. And he, he, particularly commented on on these eight and apparently when dogen was studying in china this was very common for for monks who were ill or dying or whose teachers were um in that condition to recite this sutra and it was it would you know it was it was a as a ritual practice also used in japanese tendai um but dogen is trying to highlight the you know, the personal, the kind of psychological or individual significance of actually following the teachings in addition, over and above the ritual aspect. Okay, so what are the eight teachings? And again, um, at the end, he says eight times eight equals 64. So this is a common theme when he, it seems like when he gives these uh, numerical um teachings okay so here's a brief summary um and um i think the the topics here are fairly self-evident if you read through the the fascicle what we find is that he cites uh each of these from the from the sutra and then he cites that sixth century chinese commentators uh discussion a little bit and then he moves on to the next one and, um, you know, it's up, uh, up to each person to kind of think about, Hey, uh, is the, does this kind of replace the eightfold path? Does this replace other, uh, listings of precepts? Is there something particularly special about this? Uh, you know, we can discuss that, uh, uh, after, um, in the discussion period today, but, um, the, uh, you know, just to go through that few desires, contentment, that pair seems to go together, except, what you have it doesn't mean strive for improving conditions or cultivating trying to cultivate spiritual perfection but uh not to um complain and 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 be um dissatisfied uh as which would become an obstacle uh making diligent effort in a, a peaceful and, and and with a sense of quietude uh remaining mindful and meditative in all activities um and um of course cultivating wisdom by hearing considering and cultivating in ways that testify to the dharma through actions and um and no idle chatter um so um avoiding the tendency to get caught up in in metaphysical questions or in in you know go- uh, gossip or counterproductive uh, words that distract from the spiritual path um in a way these are very straightforward of course like other precepts other sets of precepts that he's going to talk about uh the words can be easy the practice can be uh difficult the, the simpler the words the can be the more complicated it is to carry them out in actual practice okay so as i said most of it is a brief introduction with the quotations from the sutra and the 
sixth century commentator. And then Dogen at the end adds a few paragraphs. These are um, a couple of them. And um, one of the things he says here is that, you know, it's difficult to be born in a way that's conducive to pursuing enlightenment uh, by encountering the Buddha Dharma. Um, and, um, excuse me, let me go back. Um, and, um, uh, many, many, uh, people over the course of, uh, eons and Kalpas did not have the opportunity to hear these teachings and to carry them out. But now we do have the opportunity, he says. So, um, we enhance them in life after life. Now, that phrase, I think, is interesting because in some of these late writings that I, this and other uh, fascicles I pointed out on a previous slide, um, he does um, create this worldview that's kind of, you know, one way to characterize it, it's kind of the Indian, typical Indian Buddhist worldview. You don't see as much in East Asia of this kind of infinite sense of patience that this is one you know, lifetime among endless lifetimes. And if we uh, accrue good karma in this lifetime by carrying out some of these practices to some extent, even if it's not uh, a full extent, and even if it's only partial or partly accidental or coincidental, um, it's still meaningful for the overall karma that's going to build up and have an impact on on um, our uh, accumulated karma uh, in the lifetimes going forward. And in fact, in these, uh, in this fascicle and other fascicles, these are the common terminologies that he uses over and over again. Um, and he does not use some of the famous terms like Buddha nature or Genjo Komon. He, he, he refers to, um, the good roots and the unwholesome effects of karmic causality, the need for repentance, um, in order to, um, cause uh, retribution to not be severe or, or to lighten the effects of retribution and, or, and to try to transform uh, them into positive or wholesome actions that will lead to good karma. But there's also the possibilities for reversal of fortune by what we could call karmic circumstances when by chance, um, for, uh, for example, an, uh, an ignorant or selfish person happens to Come in contact with the, with the Buddhist robe wearing, being worn by a monk, maybe some walking somewhere in the, uh, in the village or the town and happens to brush against it. And that one small, uh, occurrence is kind of destined karmically to cause a person to, uh, later in, in future lifetimes to be reborn into existences that are going to be much more conducive. Uh, to their attaining uh, awakening. So, uh, one question is, uh, you know, is this, uh, in, in a way I've tried to say this is kind of consistent with some of Dogen's teachings about the emphasis on dignified demeanor. And it, in a way it sounds somewhat different than some of Dogen's teachings because of the change in vocabulary, the change in using um, Chinese Mahayana sources rather than typical Zen koans and, and Zen, uh, Zen writings that are found in most of his, um, most of the fascicles. 
And just the overall atmosphere that is created here is has a different feeling in a lot of ways. So without getting too technical, but uh, I want to highlight some other examples where the same principles that are put forth in this in this um, fascicle on the eight awakenings are expressed in other examples. So let me just briefly take a very whirlwind tour of Dogen's timeline. And some of you may be, uh, you know, more familiar than others, but let me point out the, those, uh, the three star periods beginning around 1247. And this is what Japanese scholars of Dogen have debated about. And there's no fixed opinion, but they debated about whether Dogen had a kind of change of heart late in his career because he was called to see the shogun in Kamakura, was offered a temple, which he declined, and he returned to uh, his um, Heiji and kind of offered an apology to his monks for having uh, entertained the uh, the shogun's invitation. And um, around the same time he received, in 1250, he received the new uh, version of the Buddhist canon from his... Uh, one-eyed, shall we say, samurai patron, um, who um, who sent this uh, new version of the of the Buddhist canon up to Eheji, and after that he starts citing Indian um, or, and early Chinese uh, scriptures a lot more than he ever did before, and so we have to uh, assume that there he was exposed to new writings, or at least he read them afresh uh, or for the first time in detail. Uh, beginning in that period when he when he was not preaching as much himself and he had more time on his hands perhaps and um and so this late period uh, these last five years or so of dogen's life is when he perhaps had a change of heart and put more emphasis on karma causality the basic precepts the basic teachings of buddhism rather than so much the um uh, alice in wonderland kind of um uh, uh, world of um of uh, Zen koans that he he spent most of his time talking about previously. Um, now, th- just very very briefly here, this is kind of an historical overview that after Dogen died, there was no fixed set of uh, Shobogenzo manuscripts. That um, there were d- different factions of of the Soto sect that developed, and over the course of numerous centuries, they were widely debated numerous um, uh, versions. Uh, it seems that very early on, there was a sense of there being a, a short version, a 12 fascicle version, and that the Haichi Dainin Gaku was like the 12th one. And Ejo said, you should honor this 12th one. Um, but nobody was apparently aware of that as being an actual fact until 1927, 1930, when there was a discovery and it was confirmed a few years later that this existed. And it kind of um, caused a, a, a mini revolution or maybe even a bigger revolution than that within uh, Dogen studies in Japan. And, and these topics are still being debated. But my point here is to simply say that the emphasis on repentance and ca- karmic causality was not unique to this one fascicle or maybe even to the late period. Now, let's look at a fascicle. And, and I'm sure, you, you know, this has been discussed uh, a lot at at Ancient Dragon. 
and a fascinating fascicle that starts by citing uh, the the famous poem by um, a Chinese uh, poet who was not a Sudongpo, who was not a monk, but was very influenced by Buddhist practice from the late uh, 1000s about um, the sounds of valleys and the colors of mountains reflecting the Buddha. And towards the end of that fascicle, uh, Dogen is saying, hey, uh, nobody seems to um, really understand it in Japan. Like in Japan, people are not really capable of understanding what's going on in Japan. And then he says that he advises that people in Japan need to merit to need to gain the merit of repenting before Buddha. So this is one of Dogen's earlier writings. A dozen or so years before, it talks a lot about poetry and koans, and yet he still talks, he still introduces the topic of repentance before Buddhas and the benefit of repentance, which is, which becomes a you know, much bigger topic for him later on, it seems. And he includes a prayer that, although I have accumulated unwholesome deeds of the past, and there are um, causes and conditions obstructing the way uh, uh, Buddhism ancestors who have obtained the way of Buddha will take uh, uh, pity on me, liberate me. Uh, Hopefully this will cause them to take pity on me, liberate me from the bonds of my deeds, and remove hindrances in studying the way. Their merit and teachings will pervade the inexhaustible Dharma realm, and they will act with compassion towards me. So this, you know, this might be an outlier, this passage. It's not that common in these earlier fascicles of Shobogenzo, but it does show that it was on Dogen's mind and comes to the forefront as he himself uh, faces, faces death. Okay, uh, a couple more slides. Now, in the extensive record, which uh, Taigen and Shohaku have superbly translated, um, there's a passage, and, you know, you can check uh, the, I think he, uh, Taigen describes this in a lengthy footnote. Um, it's Dharma Hall Discourse, Volume 3, Number 251. This was when he returned from the visit to Kamakura after having rejected the Hojo Tokiori, the Shogun. And then facing his followers, who were upset, why was he gone for six months? Did he teach something else there that he didn't teach the monks? And what, what what's going on? And he says, there was no Dharma preached that I have not previously expounded. Those who practice virtue improve, and those who practice unwholesomeness weaken. Very simple. So they should clarify the cause and experience the effects. Throw away the tile and take up the jewel. And then there's a very interesting sentence. It's been translated in different ways, uh, but it seems like a confession. It seems like an admission. How many errors I have made in my effort to cultivate the way. I, too, am part of this process. I'm not... um, disclaiming myself and and maybe my teachings have not been uh for the best or maybe i need to um, you know improve my style of teaching and of course we appreciate that somebody 
as uh, accomplished as Dogen is willing to continue. And this is what, one of the things Dogen represents constantly, you know, constant exertion, ongoing cultivation, meaning you're always looking for ways to improve yourself and your, his relation to his Sangha. So in the, tw- back in the 1240, he talked about karma causality, uh, this discourse from 1250-48. And then here's another one from the extensive record from 1250, a little in closer in time to Eight Awakenings. And here he gives a story. Let me fix another typo. <laughs> um, that is also mentioned in another fascicle that's part of the 12 fascicle collection called Shizen Biku or Four Stages of Meditation. In that fascicle, he talks about how if you reach the four states of meditation, that's not necessarily sufficient. Don't, don't rest on your laurels because you're at the fourth state of, stage of meditation. So that's an, another interesting theme that is taken up. But here he gives the story that Buddhist followers were asked by a 120-year-old man if he could join uh, their assembly. And, uh, you know, they said, no, you know, what, what's the point? And Buddha said, yes. So they had to come to terms with what, why would the Buddha say yes? And they had to uh, deal with the fact that he was going to be a member. Why does the Buddha say yes? To, well, to make a long story short, the Buddha says, you know, if, if you know, obviously the 120-year-old man is, is going to die soon, but every moment that he has where he gains uh, beneficial karma by being part of the community, uh, will benefit him down the road. So it doesn't mean that he's going to attain awakening and uh, reach parinirvana now, but it does help assure that in the future, it's a lot more likely. So um, the fact that he told this story twice, and uh, if you if you check the translation, 5.381 is a, is a, is a rather lengthy um, discourse compared to some of the others. And he spent a lot of uh, focus on this old uh, Indian Buddhist story and that he has a whole fascicle where he, he talks quite a bit about it as well, indicates how Dogen was trying to get that message across. Um, and so I'm, I'm saying that um, there were different stages where that message was occurring to him as early as, uh, where was it? Um, here it is, Kaysan San Shoku as early as 1240. But it it becomes more uh, more prominent when he returns from Kamakura in twelve forty eight, twelve fifty, and there's other examples I could give from extensive record and from the twelve fascicle collection that shows there was a close connection between uh, a lot of these Dharma Hall discourses from this late later period. You know, there were five hundred and thirty one Dharma Hall discourses altogether. <clears throat> so as you get into these higher numbers, the three late three hundreds and four hundreds. You know, it shows that they were all from that late period, 1250, 1251, and he stopped doing them in 1252. Um, okay, um, so one more slide, and then we can have some uh, questions. Um, and this is from another late fascicle, Sanji Go, Karma in Three Times. Um, if you remember when I showed Kaz's history section there, this was the first one listed under 
uh, not dated section. So he had it as number 85. It's number um, eight in the um, in the in the twelve fascicle collection, and it may be, it may appear in different numbers in various collections. But it was one of a of a group of at least um, uh, eight, nine, or ten of these that that Ejo kind of uh, found apparently after Dogen died, or Dogen was working on them and hadn't quite completed them. We don't really know exactly what would have happened, but in in the summer of 1255, Ejo and Guillen uh, worked to uh, put these into shape. And um, like some other fascicles, there's different versions. That Sanji Go has two different um, uh, versions that are still available. And, you know, the Japanese scholars are looking very eagerly at what are the exact differences between those two versions and, and sometimes taking it sentence by sentence to see if they again changed his mind or revised something or some later editor came in. So without going into all those details, um, my point here is to bring forward a basic message from this uh, Sanji Go fascicle, karma in three times. Now, karma in three times means karma in this life, the next life, and future lives. The implication is that the karma comes from past lives. And it affects us in this life and the future. But when they say in three times, they don't, it doesn't mean past, present, or future. It means this life, the next life, and future lives. So again, he's taking that kind of Indian worldview, I would call it, uh, Indian Buddhist worldview that the epics go on endlessly. And that's true of, that was true of the Buddha's own, uh, rebirth in endless amount of lifetimes before he became Shakyamuni Buddha and the prior primordial Buddhas went through all of these uh, endless stages as well. And um, I'm not, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to say that that's what Dogen believed or that's what he's endorsing exactly, but that's the worldview that seems to come through uh, at least between the lines in the way he's expressing himself in, in some of these late, lately late written fascicles. And some of which were uh, lost or not understood to be a, a, a solid group of one group of 12 fascicles until the early 20th century. Of course, Dogen's whole, you know, many of Dogen's writings are known by being, for being lost. Bendoa was lost for many, many years. The, the Shobogenzo in 300 Koan cases was lost for many years. Um, Ehe Shingi was something that was uh, compiled uh, from essays, er, earlier essays, but it wasn't compiled to the, 1600s. So, you know, Dogen is an ongoing process of discovery, uh, recovery, discovery, um, things lost and, and, and re, uh, re, uh, attained or reawakened. Okay. So to read this passage, um, the saying of the world honored one, meaning Buddha, um, once virtu virtuous or unwholesome karma is created, the effects endure throughout hundreds of thousands of kalpas. When facing causes and conditions, we realize this. Therefore, therefore, as for dealing with unwholesome actions, if we repent, and I want to stress that um, the the simple word "if we repent." Um, 
because there's another version, as I said, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, often these are, these festivals exist in two or, or, or several versions. There's another version of this where it leaves off the conditional the word if, and I'll explain the significance in a second. But here it says, as for unwholesome actions, if we repent, they're extinguished and a weighty load, a karmic, uh, the weight of karma is transformed into a lesser burden. Virtuous actions, if we rejoice in them, are continually enhanced. And this endures as uh, recompense is never denied. So there are a couple of key points that are expressed here. First of all, what lasts um, hundreds of thousands of kalpas. Uh, Second of all, coming face-to-face with um, karmic causes and conditions. Third, there's a distinction between unwholesome actions and wholesome or virtuous actions. The virtuous actions, we, we should rejoice and enhance them, and that will endure. And the recompense is never denied. So karmic recompense is going to go on no matter what. And the virtue will be rewarded and the um, unwholesome will not will be punished, basically, is is being expressed here. And we can't we can't deny it. We can try to transform it. How do you transform it? Well, sometimes there's kind of karmic destiny when you run into um, uh, over here somebody reciting a sutra in the marketplace, maybe, and uh, all, suddenly you have uh, an awakening or, you know, you uh, other examples I mentioned earlier. But, of course, the single main way to transform it is through uh, repentance. If we repent. Now, what's the big deal about if we repent? Well, the other version of the passage just says repentance extinguishes unwholesome actions. So is there a difference? Well, the the difference would be that if you say repentance extinguishes unwholesome actions, it might lead to an implication. Well, what is this repentance? Does it mean that any kind of confession that's mechanical, that's inauthentic, that's automatic, that's done for the sake of convenience, does for the sake of saving face, avoiding shame in public, um, will, will redeem you? And according to, uh, some Dogen commentators, well, that could be an implication of the other version. But this version, when Dogen says, if we repent, the implication is that he means that if we genuinely, sincerely, authentically, from the bottom of our heart, uh, through facing the karmic causes and conditions, come to terms with our shortcomings, transgressions, failures, um, and blind sides, etc. If we come to terms with those, then we can begin to extinguish. So the extinction of the unwholesome actions is possible. But we don't want to deceive ourselves into thinking that it's possible as a kind of um, automatic process that's going to happen anytime um, a um, a confession is delivered, if you know, even if it's not authentic. Okay, so to uh, sum up, and then I'll stop there, is... Um, that um, this is this fascicle, along with the eight awakenings, uh, presents that uh, as part of the presentation of that last instruction worldview that Dogen is um, is presenting to us, and that raises a lot of questions about Dogen. Um, is did he come to a new understanding? Is it 
consistent with the other understanding? Are there different levels of truth that he's addressing? Was this for lay followers and and the other for um, for monks? I, I I don't buy that distinction. I haven't gone into that argument, but I don't think it's as simple as saying uh, there were simply two audiences for him because uh, I think that doesn't that argument doesn't quite hold up. But uh, I'll leave I'll leave with those questions and uh, I'll stop here for now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, David Ray, would you help call on anybody who has comments, reflections, questions from online and also from uh, in, in the Zendo at Lincoln Square? You're in the hall and want to speak, please just go ahead and, and speak up. And I see Paul's hand is raised. Uh, uh, Stephen, thank you very much for that, for that very clear explanation of or expounding on what Dogen thought we should do as individuals, but many people in this Sangha, as well as the greater American Buddhist Sangha, is very concerned with social justice and social outreach. And is there anything in Dogen's teaching that would lead us to understand how we should relate to that, that question? Um, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And, um, you know, I, uh, you know, there was that famous saying a few years ago, what would so-and-so do? What would Jesus do? What would Machiavelli do? <laughs> what would Dogen do in current circumstances? So some of the, some of the social outreach, um, challenges that, that occur today, of course, are perennial because it's after all human society. And some of them are, uh, probably unique to, you know, modern, modern uh, america or modern west or at least modernization that that are um that are somewhat different so um i you know i think this is an age-old issue with with buddhism as a monastic tradition that has um uh, ma- ma- that made its way in china and then you know came to uh, japan and and korea and vietnam and other places but um ha- you know and ha- had, had to find its way intersecting with other uh, traditions with confucianism Taoism, shinto for example and uh, various um uh pushes and pulls from uh society where where generally uh the uh, religious traditions were were um supervised by the um by uh, government forces by the state by the imperial forces in in china and by by the uh by the emperor um in Japan and then the shoguns in Japan. So there's all kinds of conditions that come up that, that affect, uh, uh Dogen. Uh, I guess the, the good news would be that, um, that, um, this, um, individual self, self challenge, self reliance through the, the kind of, uh, genuinely confessional worldview, I think that he's, that he's endorsing. Is and and the fact that this is carried out through uh, activities uh, does, uh, if even if it's not a specific blueprint for what can be done today, does open the door to the spiritual inspiration to say um, uh, to, to show the to show some of the um, uh, the way uh, philosophy and practice can be integrated to to create the kind of commitment that would endure through and persist through the difficulties. Of facing um, the the spiritual outreach, the the um, social socially active outreach. 
So I think that Dogen is there, so to speak, but um, there's not necessarily um, a specific plan. But if you carry out these eight awakenings, and if you carry out the 16 Jukai and, and, and the other examples, um, uh, certainly uh, an implication is that those can, those can um, uh, see you through. So um, that, that's my preliminary answer. Uh, any any thoughts on that, Paul? Well, I, I, I mean, if you judge by, uh, by what actually happened, was he came back from China and saw Imperial Japan and ran off to the mountains. And then later he went to Kabakura and saw uh, the, the shoguns in uh, military Japan and yeah. ran, ran back to the mountains. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so, so his, it seems like his suggestion is, is to uh, go back to the mountain, go, go to the go to the mountains and sit Shikantaza. That seems to be his, but, I, but I'm not sure that's an answer that's going to be successful in modern America with the, with uh, all the uh, you know, all the the electronic communications and the and the inter, interconnected economies and so forth. Right. Right. I'm not sure that we can use that as a as a guideline for our yeah. Yeah. life. As much as it sounds unpleasant, actually, it's, well, I did it, I did it myself at Tassahara for a number of years, and it was quite quite wonderful. But um, I didn't. I felt that there was something missing personally. Uh, yeah, I, I hear you. Um, let me let me try to put a little bit different face on um, the idea of quote unquote running back to the mountains. Uh, because the, the mountains that he ran to was w- not necessarily a pristine, you know, pure environment that was free of the kinds of uh, social challenges that, that you're, you know, that you're evoking. You know, in fact, uh, you know, the stereotype and you don't see this in, um, in books about Zen anymore, but even, you know, when, when in, for old timers like me and Ty again, for the, the books that were written back in the fifties and sixties, they would often refer to um, Rinzai Zen as gen, you know, generalissimo Zen or, or Shogun Zen, and um, and the um, and to um, uh, Soto Zen as uh, farmer Zen, and you know, uh, so uh, what what Soto Zen in um, especially you know in in, Do- in Dogen's own time, but especially after his time when Do- when when Soto Zen spread quite a bit. And Rinzai Zen was the one that stayed pretty much uh, static. I don't want to, uh, static may be too strong a word, but it, it pretty much stayed, uh, uh, had its dominant position in, in Kyoto, in the capital, right? But did that, that make it more socially active or that or that make it that they were just acquiesced to the, uh, to the Shogun? You know, that's the big question. Um, and then, whereas um, the, the active one was Soto Zen, and it was called Farmer Zen because they were out there building you know, irrigation uh, for the for the rice farming, building bridges during floods, uh, and um, and and with all kinds of uh, activities that endeared them to the uh, endeared the monks to to the local populations. So it wasn't it wasn't just solitude, sereneness, and quietude. And um, there, so that's that's kind of what comes across, and that's the image that Heiji tries to preserve to a large extent today. But obviously. Heiji has always been, um, well, you know, it's, it's an ongoing challenge to keep a Heiji, 
kind of, you know, they're building a, you know, big tourist hotel nearby and all that. So uh, that's a, that's a different set of issues, but I I don't think, uh, so I, I would, I would, um, I would urge that we start to think about um, that, that Dogen's emphasis on the precepts in, in these fascicles as, as providing the impetus to, to see, to see that the, um, uh, that, that, you know, mountain life is not mountain life uh, separated from its commitment to the everyday world. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Um, I wanted to um, you to say more about what you translated as critical. Um, Eve, will you speak up just a little? Yeah, okay. I wanted you to say more about what you translated as critical self-reflection and, oh. and self-transformation, because what I was wondering about is what's the difference between that and, like, you know, doing something because your teacher told you to or relying on other people's judgments. Right, right. Okay, so... Uh, I think you're referring to this last slide here about that yes. conditionality on, uh, especially uh, uh, when I was referring to the conditionality on if we repent rather than just say repent. So uh, the critical self-reflection, I mean, they had, I, I, this is kind of a modern um, phrasing in in Zen and Japanese philosophy, but they did have uh, passages and uh, wording like that in in Dogen's time. I don't think that that phrase was actually uh, used by by Dogen. But the I, you know I think he was at pains to try to distinguish what in modern jargon we would call inauthentic versus authentic. I think is you know or, or uh, good faith versus bad faith. And um, uh, so a lot of the you know going back to the issue of non duality and morality. You know um, if you um, you know, if you take Jal Joe's saying, well, I, you know, I'll get to hell before you do. Uh, it sounds clever. It makes a good point. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the perennial question is, well, in the hands of somebody who's not as sincere as we assume Jal Joe was and some and Dogen and some of the great figures were, um, it could sound, uh, you know, offhanded. It could sound manipulative. It could sound uh just like a game of one upmanship and that's that's what the rhetoric uh often um uh turns into i, I mean i don't agree with those cr- criticisms but i think the you know the issue that's often referred to in philosophy of religion is antinomianism where you know um meditative traditions east and west can give you the license to to uh cut off from from duality, cut off from right and wrong, and therefore, who's to say what's right and what's wrong? You know, and um, and in Dogen's case, you know, he there was the famous incident where he punished one of his uh, followers for listening to the Shogun, and he threw away his meditation seat and expelled him. And um, is that a, a, like just take that example? Is that a great example of uh, carrying out punishment in a fair? very stern but fair way or is that could that be conceived of as a kind of uh, abuse of power Uh, again i'm not saying dogan abuse power but you know when you when you make these uh, controversial decisions and put yourself on the line it's um uh, how people assess it can cut various ways 
So what what can be done as the safeguard? What what can be done to ensure the uh, authenticity and the sincerity and the genuine quality? And uh, so a term like genuine self, self, a critical self uh, reflection comes up. Now, we got to consider in Japan, things have been complicated in modern Japan because um, of the pre-war and post-war situations where um you know and Brian Victoria has has uh, is is best known for his trying to expose uh, some of these issues and you know maybe he goes a little far too far sometimes but the the point is that in in Japanese intellectual discourse it's quite clear that Buddhist intellectuals and other figures who um who are you know resisting the imperial way in the in the 1930s were forced to quote unquote confess their misdirection and and have it have a, um, a a rebirth or transformation into accepting the imperial way and then uh, after the war during the occupation and after the occupation some of the same figures confessed that when they did that first confession towards the imperial way that that was a big mistake and of course you know we're going to prefer that that second confession as more authentic but um, these are slippery terms. So the, the terms only work insofar as as they're carried out um, with, with that with that degree of uh, self uh, assurance, self confidence, self reliance that can be um, approved of uh, and that can be confirmational rather than counterproductive to the Dharma. So I hope that answers uh, a little bit that question. There's, a, there's another question um, from Dylan. Hi, Stephen. Um, Hi. So I'm thinking about that last uh, slide about karma. Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm wondering, like, how how it's assured that certain acts will be rewarded and which certain ones will be punished. Like, how, how does that punishment and or reward happen? Uh, like, or how, I guess, how is it? conceived of as happening by by dogen or buddhism at that time how how was there like assurance about that and i just question it now because of how much you know uh corrupt folks in power are able to insulate themselves from being held accountable from from their actions uh, right which we right. see often you know yes and of course you know again another perennial issue uh in dogen and society in general um the that um those who seem to benefit the most from circumstances are the ones that deserve the least so how do we sit here and and talk about karma so this is where i think uh, you know i've been mentioning this indian buddhist worldview i think that dogen did you know this was probably something that dogen and other buddhists in in japan and china embraced to some extent because it was basic buddhism but i think you know, if if there is a change in Dogen, change of heart in Dogen, or a change shift in attitude in his later years, um, and and if his going back to the mountains in Heiji after Kamakura was a little bit different from his first travel to the mountains. Um, um, anyway, my point is that Dogen had faith 
in karma causality as kind of a universal moral principle that was going to pan out and no matter what we thought about it or what we what we did but the results of it were only going to be felt sporadically or uh, or you know they were going they were going to um extend outward for endless calpus i mean that's that's i you know it's not necessarily a satisfying answer in today's world you know especially where we have such immediate problems that we're trying to resolve but i you know when you say like what assures it i i think dogen had a faith and if you go back to the early early buddhist writings that 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 really influenced them that what whatever they say about karma and causality in those writings that that it's it's a it's a principle that that works out you may not see it in this lifetime in the next lifetime but it's it, it is going to and you know buddha himself went through you know the person that became shakyamuni buddha he had to go through because as great a teacher as he was in various lifetimes before he was shakyamuni buddha he always had to learn a better lesson about how to become a better teacher so the the amount of lesson learning uh, and the time that it takes to uh, you know enact the practices carry out the wholesome and unwholesome actions that eventually we can purify and transmute into through repentance into whole, fully wholesome actions and then enact those and make sure that all the weeds are uh eradicated from from the we, the weediness of uh mistakes and you know so you know the, one of the one of the sayings that was common in um in uh, Chinese uh, Zen at the time Dogen went and he uses a few times especially in the um uh fascicle Sokushin uh, Zabutsu this mind is Buddha fascicle um is mistake upon mistake you know we make mistake upon mistake until the implication is we come, we make the kind of right the right mistake you know i'm always uh, you know a few years ago i learned that um that because i i was i've been discussing some of these uh, old sayings with uh some friends of mine who are native chinese speakers today and when they hear the word the right mistake uh there was a famous uh, kind of teen romance novel uh you know about about um some couple that you know was together some teen couple that was together and then they and their relationship fell apart and then eventually circumstances led them back to the right mistake and they got back together so the, the, you know it becomes a kind of cliche for meaning something quite different than than this high moral principles that we're talking about um that that phrase make mistake after mistake but i think that sums up dogen's attitude and that of zen at the at the time to a large extent that we have to be prepared that the, these are endless mistakes that we're making but you know even the uh, buddha according to one saying uh, carries um a board across his shoulder meaning even the buddha has a kind of tunnel vision even the buddha that can't see you know behind his head even the buddha himself is is going to um fall short in some capacities and, but the assurance go back to the question the assurance would be that the karmic principle will prevail in the end and we have to accept that the the better the i think i think what dogen would say is that the sooner and more deeply we accept that the the better will come to terms with the apparent injustices and inequalities and inconsistencies that we see all around us Stephen, I wonder if I might ask you about something that I think is in the in the text, um, but but I think was not in your 
in your talk, but since you mentioned uh, Zhao Zhou going to hell um, at the beginning, I wonder if I could ask you about the demonic in um, in Dogen, because I think that I think the text uh, has something that mentions like devilish disturbance, or it says I think that's how Nierman renders it, and I think Kaz says at the end it says something like some people get confused by demons or something like that, mm. um, and that surprised me. I I, I had never. Um, I haven't read that much Dogen, but I but I was surprised to to see Dogen saying things about about demons. It's near the end. It's like a few paragraphs from the from the end. And apologies for asking a question about something that was not in your talk. But, but no, 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 that's that's fine. Yeah, I'm trying to um, you know uh, I'm trying to do a quick search in the Nearman. Now there is the the saying um, about um, a demon's cave. You know that uh, he 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 frequently. This is a common Zen saying that um, you shouldn't make your living in a ghost cave or in a demon's cave. Meaning, th- those are false teachers. Those are the phonies. Those are the people that that pretend to be authentic and really aren't. And they eventually they're gonna they're gonna get themselves exposed. And so there is uh, there is that kind of imagery. I mean, I think for the most part, the imagery about hell or demon or devilish is. Um, is kind of playfully, you know, tongue in cheek used. Now, remember, you know, that basically the East Asian uh, religious uh, standpoint is that, you know, demons are demons and 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 good spirits or bodhisattvas. Let's say the demons and bodhisattvas are not opposite um, because uh, it's, it depends on the circumstances and situations. So bodhisattvas may end up doing something that may seem demonic uh, if they if they take a harsh stance towards someone who's ignorant and and some somebody and some force that seems demonic may be trapped in their own bad karma and they're trying to release themselves and do something that's that's good and there's cer- certain stories like that and koans like that like there's the there's a famous uh, story about the um uh i i think an official visits the temple and the monk uh spills the tea kettle and they said well why, how could you do that in front of this official and he, and he said oh it must have been the the stove god, you know, was was demonic that day and and caused it, you know, and it's like saying, hey, the devil made me do it. I, it was, it's, it's a way of shirking responsibility. Uh, on the other hand, we can say that in that worldview, and I think Cos points this out, you know, it was taken for granted that like when you were addressing uh, people in the Dharma Hall or in other parts of the temple for Dogen, um, you know, bodhisattvas were there, other spirits were there, like it was, it, it, it was, um, you know, sp- spiritual beings are there in addition to the the human beings they, that we have in front of us. So, you know, when the fox appears in the famous fox koan, okay, we take for granted that, hey, these spirits are kind of lurking there. And a lot of times what seems like a demonic spirit is really a bodhisattva who's, or a bodhisattva-to-be who's been trapped, entrapped by circumstances, and they're seeking, they're seeking that liberation. So I think that's the main way it's being used. Um, and, you know, not in an absolute evil sense. Thank you. And um, I can hop in and ask a question. Um I was curious, Stephen, just thinking about how Dogen <clears throat> is teaching us in his last uh, writing here. Yeah. I was curious if you'd 
compared that or could with other Zen teachers sort of last teaching. And if there were certain things that Dogen maybe chose to focus on or interpret from um, the Buddha's um, teach final teaching that maybe other teachers, you know, disagreed on as the thing that you should really try to, excuse me, get across to your students at the end. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. These are all great questions, by the way. Thank you for that question. Um, Yes. So I've just been starting to think about this more recently myself. I mean, this is uh, something, you know, that's one thing I like about Dogen is that as many times I've read through a lot of this stuff, you know, uh, something may happen that causes me, oh my gosh, you know, I never really understood this before. I just had this in a little box somewhere off of my mind. Now I really have to pay attention to this. And this whole idea of his borrowing from that sutra, um, I, I'm, I'm still investigating the extent of it. So like I said, apparently it was, it was very popular when he went to China. Uh, they say that in Chinese temples, this was something kind of taken for granted that you would recite it, anybody who was ill or close to death. And also at the time of, the, of celebrating the Buddha's death anniversary. Um, and, um, and that, and that, that, um, that was some, um, you know, that kind of ritual was also being practiced in Japanese Buddhism. The Dogen was probably trained in before he turned to Zen. So I think what, um, but, but I think what's clear in Zen and like Dogen and others is this emphasis on anticipation of the moment of death is not something that you do you know, shortly before you die, that's how you live your entire life. I mean, that's a theme that uh, kind of a a separate theme that I would go into in a different lecture, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. So, you know, I think there's a famous line from um, T.S. Eliot, Four Quartets and um, uh, about um, similar words to what I just said, or when, when you hear like a musician say, Hey, you play the piece, you know, you play your he- the hell out of a piece like it's the first time you've ever played it, and it may be the last time you've ever played it. Or, you know, if you know the sh- old Shaker uh, furniture that uh, a simple oak chair could, you know, sell for $500,000 at an auction today, uh, the Shakers would say, like, you know, we built that chair like an angel was going to sit there for a thousand years, but it might be the last chair we ever built. And I think that's the that's the worldview that Dogen wants. So in that sense, it's consistent with his whole emphasis on impermanence you know, f- facing the do-like existence, everything is evanescent. And that, um, a- a- so I think that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is that I think that as Dogen faced death, he thought to himself, and he probably went back to think of, you know, what was what was Ruzhing's instruction to him? I mean, we know when he left China, Ruzhing either died uh, that summer or the next summer, there's there's two dates that are given, uh, but it was shortly after Dogen left. So Dogen, so Ruzhing was like in his mid sixties. Of course, you know that that made something different in those in those days, um, and um, in terms of you know aging, I guess. And um, anyway, uh, Dogen was probably aware that Ruzhing was was aging, you know, and he was one of his last great disciples. Maybe his greatest disciple, and maybe Dogen had that awareness. And Ruzhing, you know, if you kind of read between the lines of what Ruzhing told Dogen, is he said basically, go back and teach Buddhism. Remember Ruzhing, and 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 there's many Dogen passages where he said like, don't call us Zen, don't get hung up on sectarian labels, don't don't divide Buddhism into these categories. Even though he does, you know, he does use those categories himself in some contexts. 
But the idea is that what's the basic messages I, I can give to lay? That's why I don't like to dis, distinguish so much and say, well, he said this for monks and he said this for lay people. Because if you go back, let me let me go back to that image here. That's one point I didn't. Um, in that. Um, from the at the beginning. Um, the picture of him. OK. So if you look at this audience, we can see that Dogen is surrounded by his close disciples. There's other disciples sitting there. But there are, there are a lot of lay people here on the side of the platform. Uh, they're kind of set off on the side. I guess they wouldn't be sitting with them in the area with the monks. And then there's more lay people below the platform listening in and who who are these people were these were these kind of local farmers that that you know came along and heard, oh you know master dogan's going to give a big lecture today or were these like uh lay people who maybe worked who you know did some of the service work and maintenance crew uh on the temple grounds or we don't know but you know everybody looks very attentive and eager to hear but i my point here is that I think what he's trying to do is give an across-the-board summary of, like, this is the essence of Buddhism. And let's make it um, straightforward, not to simplify it, not to water it down, not to say, oh, laymen all hear it this way, but monks hear something else. But th this is like the basic thing, carry out these precepts. And don't just carry them out because I'm dying or because you're, you, you're going to wait till you're dying. This is what you're doing every single moment. So the, the voice that we hear in our head is like, hey, you know, th this could be my last time doing this. Not, not to get exaggerate that in a morbid way, but in, but to make that an incentive, an injunction, and a source of inspiration. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Stephen. I think maybe we have time for one more comment or uh, response. Uh, anyone? I know my old friend Victor Fort won't let me down now. He must have a great question. <laughs> Victor. Yeah, um yeah, I don't know if these are uh, great questions. I um not not as much uh, I guess associated with the uh, issue issue of ethics, but um um uh, you you mentioned that uh the fascicle um She's in Biku. Yeah. And uh, I was, I've always been uh, somewhat confused about the notion of uh, jhana in the Zen tradition, although kind of the word Zen even originates from, you know, right. from that uh, Indian yeah. term, that, that notion of that, uh, those kinds of attainments that were so central to, um, uh, early Buddhism, they don't seem to be of uh, any significance uh, in in the Zen. Those levels of attainment, you're saying, right? That, right. That, that Buddhism, that early Indian Buddhism analyzes in detail, and that kind of get generalized or swept under in in Chinese Buddhism, especially in Zen, right? Is yeah, and in that fascicle, he 
he seems to discuss them in, in those terms anyway, uh, but that can be mistaken for actual liberation. But they, but uh, he, he seems to be discussing them within the kind of Indian context. He originally exactly, exactly. Yeah. And what he does in those late, a lot of those late fascicles is he just take. I, I shouldn't say he just takes, but he takes these Indian Buddhist stories, and some of them again commented by early Chinese Mahayana commentators, and. Uh, you know, very little is mentioned about Zen, uh, as we normally think of it. Now, in that fascicle, he does criticize, that's the same fascicle where he criticizes Huynang a little bit for the Kensho idea. And he said, well, that, you know, that must have, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe, maybe Dogen, maybe Huynang was misquoted there. So there he mentions Zen, but in a critical context. But yeah, so you're right. I mean, a lot of these detailed, um, Issues and the whole, uh, you know, time and view of Kalpas. Um, nah, it just turns into a metaphor in Chinese Buddhism. And, and so Zen is, yeah, Jhana, Chan, Zen. It, okay. It, it, yeah. They, uh, you know, obviously there's nuances and subtleties there, but he's going back to that Indian Buddhist story where, uh, the the four levels of it are analyzed and getting to the fourth level does not equal liberation. And he, and that, that's his criticism, a lot of his contemporaries and colleagues in, in, in Zen in China and Japan and, 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 you know, maybe in, in uh, Shingon or um, other traditions like Miyowei was the famous teacher that, that, um, <clears throat> uh, that was a contemporary of Dogen that that practice meditation and they there was kind of a informal debate maybe between Dogen and 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 Miyowe's followers at least um hey you know don't don't think that getting to the more subtle states of meditation is is equal to it so yeah that was that was something you would not see in any of the koan collections for the most part it might be hinted at here and there because they're critical of people who are arrogant and stubborn and and you know, and think that uh, that their cleverness in a, in a in a encounter dialogue uh, means that they're uh, truly awakened. But it is a very different style that Dogen has there compared to his earlier writings, and compared to what you have. So I think that's what makes it the twelve fascicle. This twelve fascicle collection can be very interesting. By the way, let me let me conclude with the point that um, <clears throat> on translation. So as I showed in. Um, in Kaz's translation and in Nierman's translation, these fascicles, because they're trying to go, they're going for the comprehensive view of like all the fascicles. And so this group is kind of scattered here and there. They're, they tend to appear towards, you know, in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, but they're, they're not in one group. The new Stanford Soto Zen Project translation that's coming out with University of Hawaii Press uh, eventually <laughs> Um, it's on the way, it's getting closer. You know, that will have the 12 fascicles in one of the volumes. That's a multi-volume set. Now, uh, there was a book called Zen Master Dogen, uh, that was translated by, um, a Japanese scholar named Yokoi, a Y-O-K-O-I, and also with, uh, Brian Victoria way back in 1975, way back was one of the earliest translations. And it did have the 12 collection, but it was so early that uh and it went out of print although i think i sent you a pdf file didn't i victor uh, uh uh yeah that's true i was really happy to get it because yeah 
So I, I saw that book many years ago, but uh, right, right. If you didn't buy it, then it's yeah. it's gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that had the twelve fascicles, and because uh, uh, Brian Victoria's worked on it, uh, perfected the English translation. It is very very readable. Um, so so it is available in that source if you can get hold of it, um, or um, or it'll be much more available in the new uh, uh, translation that's coming coming out soon. Thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, thank you. So much uh, very interesting, useful material. And thank you all for the discussion. David Ray, could you uh, give us a closing chant and then we'll have announcements and then our service today, which will include a memorial dedication to Christopher Cleary, a fine translator who's recently passed away.